Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. It's good to be with you today. I'm glad to uh, see you as we go on a little bit more in our study of Hebrews. Today we're going to reflect on some of the important truths from chapter 9. By this point in our study, we're beginning to encounter some of the repetition of themes, um, the connectedness. I'm beginning to hear the same kinds of things over and over from the author. And um, the arguments are getting stronger. He's pleading and pleading with his audience to realize the supremacy of Christ and to continue to encourage them to keep following. Um, As I was kind of working through those things and hearing them for the second time, for me, I began to realize um, some of the doubts that I might have about these truths. And so today, the one over, like overarching theme for me is help me with my unbelief. And so I will, we're going to work through four points today um, about this. I have set up your paper a little bit, but before we get to that, This part of uh, one of the stories in the gospel narratives about Jesus healing the boy um, kept coming to my mind. So help me with my unbelief, that real common phrase that you hear when you hear the story of Jesus in this healing is found in Mark chapter 9. So let's evaluate these after we study this, uh, this beautiful way that Jesus and the man encounter each other in Mark chapter 9. I'm going to start with verse 17. It says, A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I think it's interesting that he uses the word unbelief. He claims it right then and there that he has an unbelieving part of this, the power of Christ in this situation. But I like the words because I think that they can guide us in any situation that we experience doubt in. Um, The same way that we have to remember, though, that we can't just muster up some extra faith for ourselves in the same way we can't generate our own righteousness, right? So all of this is under... Um, This beautiful umbrella of us just coming to God and saying, help me with my unbelief. So now let's let's look at some note-taking for today. I don't know if you can see that well, but um, the four truths, if you make space for the four truths kind of at the top of your page, maybe divide that. And underneath each truth is some space for you to address some difficulty that you have maybe believing that truth fully. I also included a little bit of a one, two, three, four, five, a little bit of a rating scale. Of course, this is only just for your self-reflection. I want you to think today as we talk about these four things, maybe which of the four 
um, God's calling you to address today. It'll be different for all of us, and we'll all have um, some different kind of that. You don't even have to do the rating if you don't if you don't want to do the rating, but just a place for you to record the truth of what we find in our study and some difficulties, some doubts that you have. I uh, I really did beg God when I was preparing this talk to take off this analogy that I'm going to share with you now, but he said do it, so here I am to confess to you probably one of those things that falls under too much information. But the thing that um, has happened to me personally in the last few months is I have uncovered the toenail polish off my toes to take care of toenail fungus. And it's really embarrassing to stand here before you and tell you that story, but I have thought about it the whole while I was presenting um, the talk today because I confess to you that I have kept on polish over the toe and just thought, I forget about it. I put the red polish on the toe and I go about my business and two or three weeks later I take it off and guess what? There's the toe with the fungus on it again. And um, so now I'm at the point where there's no beautiful red to cover it up, that we're treating it. I'm taking the medicine for it and it's getting better. But I have lived many, many months knowing that it was there, but just forgetting. And so today that is kind of my analogy to connect you to this idea of that our doubts are meant to be uncovered. They're meant to be confessed before God. They're meant to be, that's the only way that they're going to get better. Um, my daughter, Grace, told me that this is what they're doing in the high school youth, too, and I think this is so neat. They're doing this whole series on uncovering doubts so that children know, the young youth know of our church, that, that it's okay, that, that the doubting that leads to greater understanding is, and um, this is a safe place to do it in our church. And so we're just kind of joining them on that part of our study. So toenails and all, here we go. The first truth isn't... Um, explicitly stated in our study, um, but this is an overarching truth that I want us to think about as we begin, that God desires for us to be in his presence. Um, we know that when God created, he designed the garden to be a place where man and woman would be in his presence. This is what it says in Genesis 3, 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This, of course, is after the fall, but it does give us indication of how things were meant to be. But it also suggests something more powerful, that, that God was approaching them. I think I've missed that several times in the, in the reading. Somehow, once again, in my own self-absorption, I, um, I think that it's me who's doing the approaching, right? That this is about me finding time or encountering God when that's really just a pretty conceited and self-centered belief. Another thing I noticed in this Genesis account is how they covered themselves with the leaves, the things that were meant to be blessings, the things that were meant to sustain them. Um, that's what they used to hide from God, and doesn't take much of a leap to find that for myself, that the things that are blessings in my life, I can use quite easily to put distance between myself and God. Chores or jobs, family activities, all ways that we can find to um, put some distance there when we shouldn't. So we think again about this truth, how God desires for us to be in his presence. Um, in John chapter 1, here's some familiar verses. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
So our distance from God and conversely his desire to close that distance is the theme of the Bible in our lives. How God is working to remove and has removed this distance because of our sin. We know that Jesus became the very presence of God in the world. No longer was God's presence only seen in fire, cloud, or smoke, as we studied before. Or in the Holy of Holies, Jesus became the better tabernacle. He dwelled among his people, completely approachable, no sacrifice required. So all the shadows and types of Christ now become revealed in human flesh. A third way or a third little verse here that we can see where God's desiring for us to be in his presence, um, we find in Romans. This one may be the hardest for you and me to grasp, but the belief that God makes um, Christ Jesus in the world, but that the Holy Spirit is in us, that God dwells in us. We are tabernacles for the Holy Spirit. God's desire for us to be in his presence is so great that he provides for his Holy Spirit to dwell in us. What a blessing no longer to not have to travel to a particular location, to do a ritual, to perform a sacrifice, to come into God's presence. Romans 8 says this, And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. So now for some reflection. God desires for us to be in his presence. How are you feeling with that today? So, again, not even do I confess to you my toenail fungus, which at this point might be the least of the confessions. Each of these times that we end a truth, I'm confessing to you my um, difficulties or my doubts in believing. So you can record these if you share these in that bottom part of your notes, or maybe you have your own. You don't have to rate yourself, but... Are you, um, how are you with the truth of God desires for us to be in his presence? Sometimes I think things like, how could God love me? That I'm unworthy, that my unrighteousness is too great, that the Spirit of God couldn't be in me. Am I really a tabernacle for the Holy Spirit? Just know that in this confession, in these words that the Spirit is uh, encouraging you to write down right now, just writing them down, just the confession of them, keeps you from going further further into the doubt, just addressing it here personally. The second truth I want us to spend some time on today does come more explicitly in the um, ninth chapter of Hebrews. Pretty good one. I know you guys probably talked about it in your groups that Jesus' death cleanses our conscience. It says, um, let's see, in Hebrews 9, chapter 9, verse 8 and 10, it says this According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink in the various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. So again, I find myself kind of going back to that, right? So the rituals, the sacrifices that they were so grateful and thankful that the high priest made on the Day of Atonement on their behalf, it did act a little bit like the toenail polish, right? It's just the covering. It didn't get to the root of the problem. The sacrifices under the Old Covenant did not cleanse the conscience. Nothing that actually could change the person's heart. I was reading as I was studying for this a little bit from John Piper, and 
Um, he's so animated. He got to this really one big animated uh, part of his sermon when he was kind of addressing this cleansing of conscience. And he says, I'll just paraphrase this, but he says, think of all the developments of man, like medical uh, advances, technological advances, um, all the knowledge that we've gained of the world. And we can feel quite happy about all these things that are new and better and different and in the improvements of man. But he says that of any of these things that you can imagine, of any of these life-saving measures, of anything, of all of this, there still is nothing to this day that can cleanse the conscience. There is nothing aside from Christ. So guilt and shame continue to dominate our lives. We're continually searching for approval. Am I okay? Do I have approval from this person or this person? How am I as a parent, a mother, a wife? How am I as a friend? It says, uh, let's see, can you claim the truth that God is making you a new creation? That you are being transformed from the inside out. Our text continues with this in verse 13. It says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead work to serve the living God? Our conscience will be purified from dead work. We become so totally free from the weight of our sin that we can serve the living God completely. When we ponder the things that keep us from living a life of service, living sacrifices, like it says in Romans 12, I think many of the reasons point back to the guilt that we assign ourselves. Some of the shame, maybe, that we felt from others, but mostly, for me, it's guilt that I've assigned myself, my own guilty conscience. And I believe wholeheartedly that this is the one of the greatest tools of the enemy to disable us from service, that we disqualify ourselves long before that because we believe the lie that um, we're not good enough, that we're not fit to serve, that we have nothing to offer instead of believing the truth that we are a new creation in Christ and that so many of the things that we can do and achieve in the kingdom of God has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with any part of our righteousness. And that's what the enemy desires in a mobile, self-serving church, right? Nothing more, nothing more um, probably satisfying to him. So as you think about your conscience being cleansed by the death of Jesus Christ, we have to ask God to help us conquer this unbelief. Your sins are forgiven. God desires for you to become a new creation. Not just shiny on the outside, right? Not just toenail polish pretty, but deep on the inside, completely new. Pastor Dave said this uh, a couple weeks ago, right? Not, we're not doing JV or varsity sins. We're not just committing less visible sins but really a new creation. So some of the difficulties I have with believing that Jesus' death cleanses our conscience is that my guilt is sometimes overwhelming. I feel the shame of sin, especially repeated sin, that I can't seem to shake. Or maybe I just think too much about my own forgiveness, my ability to forgive other people, and I think, if I can't forget wrongs, well, how is God? So I kind of limit this um, idea of the the great truth that our conscience can be cleansed. So maybe record a few of your own. Evaluate for a second with the urging of the Spirit how you're doing in this, in this area, this truth.
And when you're ready, we'll move on to the third one for this morning. That we will be in heaven. Near the end of chapter 9, we've got two sections of uh, verses. The first two that we'll study for this truth are verses 24 through 26. It says, For Christ has entered, not into places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This better tabernacle, not just the better tabernacle at this point, right? The greatest tabernacle that we hear spoken of in these verses. Shannon made mention of the way that this knowledge of shadows and types was growing in her understanding. And I completely agree. Um, Before engaging really in these studies of the last few years of the Old and New Testament, not seeing the overarching theme at all, I probably would have only referred to the 21st chapter of Revelation if I were pondering the things of heaven. Um, any kind of glimpse that I would have. But now I see that the Word of God does seem to reveal this richer image of eternity for us, the ultimate place of communing with God, this face-to-faceness that we will know one day. We've been learning how to connect these stories that were once disjointed, God's presence first in the fire, the smoke, and the clouds, then His presence in the tabernacle and the temple, God revealed in the human flesh of Christ, His Spirit made to dwell inside of us, and that heaven could be even more full of God's presence than this. It really is a beautifully difficult thing to comprehend and understand, but we know that that's the truth. At least we will find, at last we're going to find ourselves face to face with God, the complete revelation of the fullness of his love. Another scripture that means a lot to me about this is found in John chapter 14. <clears throat> Um, Because sometimes I think, (coughs) excuse me, it's a little bit more difficult somehow for me to argue with our red letter words, right? The words of Christ himself speaking um, truth. And so sometimes I go to this place in John chapter 14 um, because I feel like I can almost hear the voice of Christ. John records these words. Do not let your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. The disciples were greatly troubled and confused, of course, at this time, at what Jesus was telling them about his death. But because of this lack of understanding, they had to trust, and that trust would be built on believing that he is who he said he was. The disciples in that moment were not comforted by Jesus saying he was going to prepare a place for them. They wanted him to say, I'm staying with you, it's all going to be okay. But we know what the disciples didn't know in that moment was that Jesus' desire to be with those whom he loves in eternity required that he die on our behalf. Thank you. It required that blood be shed, perfect blood, so that we could gain entrance into our Father's house just by saying, I'm with Him, right? So a beautiful picture of what heaven will be like. Maybe you, like me, find this one a hard thing to believe. You know, we have different times in our life when we deal with loss. Um, 
or ourselves kind of encounter that those end of days moments where we think have to think more um, firmly about this. So I don't know how it is for you today, but take a moment and think about it. How do you feel about the truth that you will be in heaven? There's any kind of number of reasons that you can find doubt with this truth. Um, lies of the world, certainly. Um, I always wrestle with this idea of my own self-righteousness. I've confessed it several times already that somehow I'm earning my way to heaven. What does it look like? We somehow want to know furniture <laughs> arrangements, right? All the details. How can it be real? How can the presence of God even be better than some of the beautiful things that God's blessed me with here? Some of my doubts there for the truth we find in Hebrews chapter 9, that we will be in heaven because of the sacrifice of Christ. The fourth one I want you to consider is the very end of our chapter. The last two verses of chapter 9 talk about Jesus' second coming, that Christ will come again. So let's record that there in that fourth part of your notes. The last two verses of Hebrews say this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The author of Hebrews is increasing the severity of the arguments here, right? He's getting to the things that matter the most. You are appointed to die. You will face judgment. A sobering truth to the hearers of Hebrews and to us. He's pleading with them not to abandon this truth. You will die, but because Jesus died, our death will result in salvation instead of condemnation. His death was sufficient for all sin, for all time. Our trust in this truth makes us eager for the second coming. I think the eager part might be my struggle the most. Am I eager for the second coming of Christ? Certainly on days of heavy suffering, even if it's not my own, right? Those days make us eager for the return of Christ, that Christ will come again. Like I've said already this morning, one of my favorite parts of doing these studies with you the last couple of years is this connection that we have, old and new, the seeing the bigger picture, the story of God, our Bible so rich to join together. And if you did the study last fall with us, then we studied Nancy Guthrie's The Lamb of God book. Um, you'll remember a little bit about how she laid out her book. She would always kind of have us, of course, study the text either from um, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy. And so we did our work and all of our personal study questions first. And then she would kind of connect that to the narrative of Christ Jesus in the New Testament. But really my favorite part of every chapter was that last little part at the end that was called Looking Forward. It was kind of the gray pages in our book. And she would always take it one step further in that section and reference the second coming of Christ. So I have a, a part that you'll maybe remember, too, if you studied this with us, that I want to share with you. Because um, she was referencing Hebrews 9 when we were studying it in the fall. And, it, and she's writing about the once-for-all sacrifice that our great high priest made on the cross. So somewhere here in the middle of the book, I can't even remember. Oh, we were studying the tabernacle in this chapter, but here's what she writes. 
If God's people in the Old Testament looked eagerly to see the high priest reappear from behind the curtains of the most holy place, how much more should we look eagerly to see our great high priest pull back the curtain of heaven to reappear from the heavenly most holy place? When Christ appears a second time, it will be one more confirmation that the Father is satisfied with his sacrifice. And while he appeared the first time to deal with sin once and for all, when he comes again, it will be to deliver the salvation that we have set our hopes upon, complete deliverance from this fallen, sinful world into the bright and beautiful, heavenly, holy place. She writes it so well. Will you take a moment and think, reflect, how eager are you? Today, did you include that in your prayers, right? I don't think that I did. God, come again. Please, Jesus, come. I think that probably, if I were to be honest, I was consumed with the events of the day, the small things, that right? We wake up with those on our mind. So this is a beautiful moment for us to cry out, even here in this fourth truth of God, help me with my unbelief. I confess it to you. I don't want it to remain hidden. I don't want it to be polished over with maybe some, whatever your pretty red polish is. Uh, It's a safe time, a beautiful time to uncover doubt. Maybe you're like me, some of mine, on this particular truth. I will die before Christ comes again. I think that's the one I believe the most. I'm not going to be here. I'm so in touch with my... Uh, the end for myself that I don't often think like that. That it might be scary, or maybe it's just the selfish desire I have to um, live a long life. So as we close today in this pondering, again, I want you to feel the, the security, the safety that you have of expressing doubt to your Father, your good Father, who's provided a place for you. I think confessing our unbelief is really beautiful, a beautiful gift we can uh, give. And it's a way that we can grow in our faith that God can provide like he provides all things, the faith that we need for today. So I um, have these lyrics on the screen. One of my favorite song lyrics is about this abiding in the presence of God, that that we were created to, to be known and that we were created to know. And um, this song has a beautiful little refrain over and over you'll hear that says, Love is and always was the longing placed inside my heart to know you and be known by you. God desires for us to be in his presence. That longing that you have to be known, to be approved of, all of that is God-given so that you will come once again to him. So we're going to conclude today. You can have this as your time of prayer. Uh, Maybe you have some more to write. We're just going to be in some silent reflection while you hear um, this song. So again, I thank you for allowing me to have a safe place to confess doubt. Um, And I encourage you to, to strengthen your faith with the confession of doubt as you continue to study in Hebrews. And I hope that you'll be blessed by the hearing of this song.